You're listening to the Broncos Audio Zone. It's the Broncos History Podcast Edition 2. Of course, we talked to you in March about free agency history, and now the draft is coming up soon. The Broncos will be on the clock shortly. Jim Sakamano, the esteemed longtime uh, Broncos uh, employee, still contributing to DenverBroncos.com, and of course to the show on 9 News Broncos Sideline Stories. Jim is here to join me, and we're going to Take a trip through the history of the Broncos in the draft. There's so much to unpack, of course, and so many great Broncos teams have been forged by what they did, not only during the draft, but of course in one famous year, 1983, a few days after the draft. So a lot to discuss, and Jim, pleasure having you here as always, my friend. Andrew, it's a pleasure to be here. I love uh, doing these podcasts with you. And I can kind of go anywhere you want, any direction you want. And if 83 is what you want to talk about, I can almost filibuster the 83 draft. (laughs) We'll get there. But I was reminded a few weeks ago of the Broncos drafts before the common draft, 1960 to 66. And I think Mike Kliss of Nine News did a little trivia thing with the Broncos draft picks of those years and of course they signed very few players that they selected in those AFL only drafts and I admit I kind of flunked the trivia test I knew that they drafted for example Dick it was Buckus a hard it was a hard Krause, test but a lot of the other names uh, escaped uh, my mind there were some huge names that the Broncos picked you know the back same in year the that they took uh, Paul Krause they took Bob Hayes and Bob Brown they Two took hall three ha- three hall of famers yes all three in the Hall of Fame, they took them that year. They couldn't sign any of them because the guys knew. They looked, I mean, Denver Denver is the Rocky Mountains then in 1960. It's this rickety wooden stadium versus signing with the Philadelphia Eagles or whomever. You just weren't going to get the guys until you got the common draft when everybody basically had to sign mm-hmm. with the team that took them. No choice. No choice. From not, and. It was good timing for Lou Saban, but those first few drafts, looking back at the history of them, they were certainly not the events that we recall that that we know of today. They were slapdash in nature. I think some were done by telephone or you know Western Union telegram. Telephone. Uh, The Broncos are making theirs in 1960 out of Street and Smith's football, the magazine. Uh, In '67, when Lou Saban drafted. Floyd Little, there was no live tele, live never mind telecast. There was no live radio of it. Bob Martin did cut-ins. He did cut-ins. All I could do was listen to the radio and see who the Broncos took. And and you listening to a heck of a lot of programming on KOA that wasn't my programming of choice. No offense. Waiting for the Bob Martin to come down from the mountain. And this is when you were in high school, right? Middle school. Uh, Sixty-seven. I was playing freshman in college. College. Okay. I'm, I'm picturing you with bated breath sitting by the radio oh, waiting for 
the were waiting for the puffs of smoke coming yeah. from pasted in Broncos our kitchen, HQ. listening to the radio. This is simply how the world was then. There, you know, I know people say, well, "Why did you just check the internet? Why didn't?" Because <laughs> none of those things existed. They didn't exist. So, so uh, that's that's how you listed, how you listened. Now, I was once told that once upon a time, nobody attended the draft at all, media-wise. The team made its picks by long-distance phone calls, and then they did a press release that they sent out to the papers saying the San Francisco 49ers drafted these 17 guys today, hoping that it would be a story. It was only, And even when it got going, it was only covered largely by the New York media. Oh, yeah. The, the, the New York Times, the Daily News, the Post. Well, they then, were there because it was in their backyard. Yeah, and then the Denver Post and Rocky Mountain News had a story the next day, or maybe even two stories, a draft story and then an interview by phone with the top guy, whom, by the way, you're not flying in. Right. You can forget about that. He's not making an appearance in Denver till there's a mini camp. <laughs> of those early drafts, I just I was look, look, just looking at some of the AFL picks. 1962, the first round pick was Merlin Olson, Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1963, opened with uh, Kermit Alexander, running back from UCLA. 1964, you mentioned that's the year of Bob Brown in round one. Paul Krause in the 12th round, Bob Hayes in the 14th round. 1965, Dick Buckus was the first-round pick. And did you ever have hope, Jim, that the Broncos would sign, actually sign any of those guys? No, and in the case of Butkus, they were a moribund franchise financially. We were, and they chose Butkus literally because knowing that he was going to the Bears in the National Football League, they could say, and they said, we'll give you, we'll top whatever the Bears give you. They could safely do that without risk of spending money because there was no way he was coming to Denver. There was no way they were going to have to match that offer from the, offer from the Bears. So they could say, hey, look at us. We made a great offer to Dick Butkus. But if he had taken it, I don't think they could have come up with uh, one-eighth of the money. You a know? complete PR exercise. An then. absolute PR exercise. And the Broncos even had one of those after the common draft. When Lou Saban took Bobby Anderson, a right. University of Colorado guy, Col- you're tri- still trying to sell season tickets here, and Bobby Anderson was a local hero that uh, literally the, a big part of that pick was that uh, a lot of CU people might come to the Broncos games. Now, Lou Saban, of course, he was the head coaching general manager, and general manager, the duties were a little bit more extensive back then because even some of the business side did go up through him oh, at yeah. that point, selling tickets was part of Lou Saban's responsibility. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, Jerry Phipps, it's like today, all a guy has to do is, all I have to do is win. Well, in those days, it was a little different. You had to get, to get the tickets sold, the money, everything rotated. That's where it came from. And so a general manager was really a general manager of the, the football organization then. So on the 67, the first common draft, and we all know Floyd Little, the first-round pick of the Broncos, number six overall, Famously said, where's Denver? Didn't oh, know yeah. where it was. But I want to get the perspective from the Denver, Colorado community side of things. We know kind of how Floyd felt. And, of course, Floyd eventually came to embrace Denver. But and very 19, quickly. Right. But in 1967, the idea of Floyd Little, a college star that everybody already knew. Big time guy. What did that change? What did that do to change Floyd the Little was a guy... Here's a guy recruited to West Point by Douglas MacArthur. Recruited to Notre Dame, and he, he turned him down because he had promised Ernie Green standing, I mean, Ernie Davis standing next to a urinal 
that he'd go to Syracuse and then Ernie Green died. Ernie Davis, excuse That's me. Okay. And Floyd felt obligated to go to Syracuse. He, he didn't do well in high school. He had to repeat high school. Floyd Little, that's how he went to Bordentown Military Academy. Floyd had eight years of high school before he was before he went to college. I mean, it was astonishing. I mean, he, he graduated, rather, he graduated from Syracuse. He's 25 years old, but a three-time All-American, consensus All-American. There have only been two in history. Doak Walker and Floyd Little are the only two running backs who were consensus three-time All-Americans in the days when you couldn't play as a freshman. Right. So... It was astonishing that Floyd Little came to Denver. I mean, it was coming to Denver. It was a really, really big signing. Today, Floyd Little might be talking about turning pro after his sophomore season. Oh, yeah. Um, yes, and he was a great, great player. You know, but people always say to me, how fast was Floyd? I say, well, pretty fast considering he was carrying a time zone on his back. Yeah, Floyd Little, of course, he made his NFL debut in 1967, age of 25, born on the 4th of July in 1942. Mm-hmm. How Shares a birth date with George Steinbrenner and Al Davis. It's <laughs> a lot of Americana in that. Trio. Oh yeah, but he was a <laughs> and he was immediately named a team captain. Floyd Little literally was everything you could want from a captain and leader. Um, you know, I I I literally watched Joe Biden once tell him, "I thought it would be you as the first black president." Because the, Biden also went to Syracuse and played at Syracuse. But Floyd Little was big. And I've often thought, what if he goes to West Point? He's going to make general. What about an African-American general running for president? Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, Eddie, you, you can't have everything in life. But he I, might have not, still gone not, to the NFL, though. Oh, he, he After might have five, still gone to the have, NFL. Like Roger Staubach, yeah. he would have served his five years, and I think he still would have played pro football. Anyway, he was the nickname of the franchise, which I would humbly say I and Dick Connor of the Denver Post gave him, and and Floyd is kind enough to recognize this to this day. He was the franchise. He was the team. He was everything. He's on my Mount Rushmore of Broncos. Oh, no question this about day. that. Yeah, he's a top 10 and maybe a top 5. We keep and adding guys. Oh, and of, to the franchise and legitimacy of the franchise. That's right. In greatness, he's high. In importance, he ranks probably with Elway. I'm not so sure there's there's a third that comes with those two guys in importance of the franchise. Did you as a fan kind of feel that when he walked in and walked onto that field Things were different. Everything was different. But everything was different, actually, when Jerry Phipps hired Lou Saban. I remember that announcement came at night. It gives me goosebumps. Uh, it was like I'm listening to the talk show, and Bob Martin says, I've got a report that Jerry Phipps has just agreed to a 10-year, $500,000 contract, 50000 a year. And I can remember players saying, holy smoke, 50000 a year. And Lou Saban came in. His TV show, by the way, was much must-see TV. He'd say something like, uh, yeah, you know, they'd say, how's, how's this guy doing a tight end? Ah, not so hot. If he doesn't have a good game Sunday, we're probably going to wave him Monday or Tuesday. we got to get better play from this. He would say Could that you imagine his, that today? He would, say it, he would <laughs> routinely say that on his TV show. And uh, it was must-see TV. He was blunt, candid, and... Um, uh, that, that, you know, he did not have a winning record, but he by he gave the team respectability and credibility. Well, there are sometimes when a team is so far down that it takes two, even three coaching administrations yeah. to really fix it. Being from Tampa, I saw this with Sam Weich to Tony Dungy to John Gruden as far as 
Sam Weish kind of stopping the bleeding and at least making sure that mm-hmm. the, the ship stops sailing in the wrong direction. Tony Dungy to help kind of right. continue collecting players and, and getting the team to respectability. And then John Gruden to finish the job. Very similar to me with the Broncos in those days with Lou Saban at least getting it. The ship wasn't moving, but he got it pointed in a direction. And then John Ralston arriving in 1972 to build the foundation from there and as we've discussed off mic it in terms of Broncos history this five drafts from 72 to 76 probably the best sustained collection of drafts 16 they've of, ever had 16 of Ralston's draftees played at the Super Bowl in 77 14 of them started. Now, Saban, when he left, he got so frustrated. The half a loaf game really took a lot out of him. And people are dumping their garbage on his lawn. Terrible. And so he resigned. He also resigned, by the way, knowing he was going to get the Buffalo job. And he got O.J. Simpson. Anyway, so he, he, uh, you know, he was no fool. He knew where the acorns were stored. But John Ralston, and he came in with such an attitude. You know, he'd won two Rose Bowls over Ohio State. He was a big, big hire. And he, he said, no, no, we're here to win the Super Bowl. And he had a thing on his uh, on his uh, dash, on his, uh, what do you call it, the visor of his car, go to and win the Super Bowl. That was his goal, go to and win the Super Bowl. And it was unheard of. I mean, at his first press conference, when he said, we're going to go to and win the Super Bowl. I mean, they thought, no, we're going to be halfway decent. No, 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 he said, you can do anything. He was a Dale Carnegie guy. And his drafts. Andrew, they were fantastic drafts, as you alluded to moments ago. Let's start with 1972, his first draft on the job. The highest pick of the Broncos remained the highest pick until Von Miller, Riley Odoms, number five overall, still the highest they've ever taken a tight end. His name is coming up a lot this year because the Broncos at number 10, one of the possibilities we keep thinking about is tight end, and it's always okay. They've only taken one top 10 tight end ever, and that's Riley Odoms. Of course, TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant, both from Iowa, seem to have played their way into that conversation. But Riley Odoms, the first draft pick of the John what Ralston an athlete. era. Great player. And, uh, and legitimately mentioned, everybody doesn't go in and he's not in, but he's often mentioned legitimately as a Ring of Fame candidate. I could not begin to predict what the future will hold in, in those regards. But he was a tremendous player. When he retired, his tight end stats were among the best. I remember he was the kind of guy who could run with the ball, holding it out, and it was like a Nerf ball. You know I mean? He wasn't going to fumble it. He's, he's got like a, like, a, like a foam Nerf ball in his hand. and He was a load. You can imagine what he might have done today because in this generation of football, there's a better idea of how to use tight ends with his sort of speed and hands than there was back in the 1970s. Now, Riley ate a little bit, and as time went on, uh, he didn't have quite the speed that he had in his youth. Antonio Gates ate a little bit, too, and we saw last year for the Chargers. Yeah, this will happen. Even though he had the nimbleness of a truck by that point. Yeah. Somehow, he was still catching the well, ball. He was still making Yeah, plays. Riley was still Riley Odoms. Exactly <laughs> right. But uh, but it was incredible. Um, let's see. The next year was the next year. Uh, 73 was the first one I ever covered. I was a radio guy. And that began with the number nine overall pick, Otis Armstrong, from Purdue University. That's Eventual right. leading rusher in the NFL. 
Yeah, led the league, I think, twice. Averaged, uh, had a 1,400 yards. One of the rare guys to average 100 yards once. He was great. They also add, though, in that draft, I mean, Tom Jackson, Paul Howard, Barney, Chavis, and a litany of others. One of my favorites, actually, is still active. John Huffnagel. Yes. Went on to be a player, head coach, and administrator, GM type of the Canadian Football League. His teams have won multiple great cups, and he's... Um, a legend. He's won at virtually every stop he's been at. Jim, I covered John Huffnagel in the Arena League with the New Jersey Red Dogs. Oh my God! In the 1990s, and he won there. I used everywhere to, he went. I used to interview him when I was a young radio guy. Boy, that's that's a while back, Andrew. I got to <laughs> tell you that. Yes. Yeah, so John Huffnagel, he was of course a quarterback out of. Penn State, 14th round pick. Back then, the draft went to 17 rounds, mm -hmm. a long way from the seven rounds. You mentioned Barney Shavis, second round pick from South Carolina State in Orangeburg, South Carolina, 36th overall. Paul Howard started for more than a decade at guard. Uh, he's, you know, we, when we talk about the Broncos' top 100 team uh, later this year, Paul tremendous Howard player. has to be on there, in my opinion. He is opinion. a tremendous player, boy. And by the way, if you saw him now, you know, you'd say, Paul. What the heck? It looks like you could bounce bounce tennis balls against his chest all day long, and they will each go 100 <laughs> yards when they come off. Oh, my gosh. He looks great. That's always good to see. And, of course, Tom Jackson, all Broncos fans know him, whether you saw him play or you saw him broadcast for ESPN for all those decades out of Louisville. He was on, his way, he was on his way from uh, Cal Poly Pomona back to Denver for season-ending knee surgery. And then he mentions in the cab, yeah, I had this at Louisville. And they just kind of treated it. He said, what? <laughs> we know you had that at Louisville. Never had the surgery. Played all those years. So <laughs> that also leads me to a, a point that's worth making. And that is, like you mentioned, in 1960, the Broncos were using a Street and Smith's guide for their first right. AFL draft. By the mid-1970s, you had scouts. You were beyond that. But still, the degree of information that they had, particularly on the medical side, Nothing like there is today when you, they give them all the medicals in the combine. You didn't have the combine at all, and teams are kind of doing their own things. And some teams are in little little combines with five teams or four teams sharing information. Some are doing nothing. And, uh, in fact, I, to jump a year, when Ralston drafted Randy Gratishar, Gratishar flunked the physicals of Baltimore and Detroit, flunked their physicals, and Ralston was undaunted and said, no, I think I'll take him. Never missed a game as a pro, and I'm and I really do anticipate the Hall of Fame for Randy sometime in the future. Hopefully soon. Hopefully we're talking about him in 2020. Something you know we've kind I of hope so. alluded to with the hundredth birthday of the I NFL. Hope so. That I know, would be wonderful. I know it's been mentioned, but yes. anyway, we'll see. Randy Gratishar, 1974, and you mentioned take the Baltimore Colts. He flunked their physical. If he passes their physical. Do they take Randy Gratishar? <laughs> and if they do, he's never a Bronco. And perhaps 1977, for example, is vastly different because yeah. even without Gratishar, the Colts were good enough to win the AFC East that year and and take the Raiders to overtime, actually double overtime before it was decided on the pass uh, to Dave Casper. But if the Colts don't flunk Randy Gratishar in their physical, 
and they draft him. He made all it, the tackles. He the was Broncos like a may not go to the character. Super Bowl oh, in 1977. No he the was Colts like a might. Pac-Man character. Uh, Tom Jackson has told me that when people, I won't mention any names, when they poo-poo that his tackle stats can't be correct, well, you either say it, I'm a liar, but I'm not, or Joe Collier was making them up, but he wasn't. Uh, but we went to a 3-4. We were the first team. F- funneling everything to the middle. And Randy, it was like Pac-Man. He made all the tackles. Tom Jackson said the problem really is he actually was that good. And it's hard for anybody to fathom that he was that good. And not only was he a tackling machine, he could cover. Oh, tremendous. And he could make plays picks. on the ball. Yeah. There was a stretch from 75 to 78. He had at least three picks every year. I was asked a question in the mailbag earlier this month if you could have any former Bronco in his prime for the 2019 team other than Elway or Manning who would you choose and I gave two choices one on offense one on defense on offense I gave Tom Nalen on defense I chose Randy Gradshaw in part because he could do things in coverage and some of his interceptions there's one I remember in Seattle in 1978 that I've watched and it's a classic toe tap job on the sideline on a pass from Jim Zorn in the Kingdom. He was, he was quite amazing. frankly, Andrew. He was better than anybody else and smarter than anybody else. He was like, he was like playing a game in the backyard against little kids, you know. And and like he'd catch the ball, and he's now he's toe tapping. He's you couldn't. He was a magnificent player. Actually, Pro Football Encyclopedia, an organization, a book that you're familiar with. Yes, they've had learned articles in it from time to time, and one of them was written, I think, by by Pete Palmer or somebody of that nature listed the 250 greatest players of all time. Randy Gradish are listed among the greatest 250 players who ever played. Justifiably so, and uh, like you mentioned, hope we're talking about him as a Hall of Famer sooner, soon, at some point soon. On the 1975, that's the Louis Wright draft. Louis Wright, you know, I remember that vividly because I was, I was a reporter then, and, I'm, and I, I used to love to analyze the draft and did so with this friend of mine, now deceased. And, um, and I remember on the, uh, and he said, you know, I figured the, everybody knew the Broncos were taking a, a corner. I don't know if the names Dave Brown or Neil Colsey mean anything to you, but they were names that, that were mentioned. Longtime Seahawk Dave Brown, yeah. Neil Colsey. I believe uh, there was one year he was actually the Buccaneers defensive yeah. player of the year. But my sure. friend said, no, the guy who's got it all in front of him is Louis Wright, and he did. And I remember I, that morning when everybody said, who's the Bronx going to take? And I said, Louis Wright. Many people in the room said, who? San Jose like, State, not very well known. Yeah, no, not at all. And I remember, though, when I went to meet the players, when they brought all the draftees in, and they're walking in the door, and I'm, I was, remember I was talking to the, one of the Broncos' reception gals, and, and I looked toward the door, and this very tall, this specimen walked in. And I said, excuse me, who is that man? And she said, oh, that's Louis Wright. Andrew, he was like four inches taller than a corner today. He could run. He could leap. There were times Louis, half the field was surrendered to him, that the team would simply not throw to that side of the field. A little like, except he had much better had Dion. You could not throw the ball there. Yeah. You couldn't. It'd be ridiculous. You got to go someplace else with the ball. Louis, he was that good. Louis Wright. I think if you've seen Champ Bailey, if you've watched the Broncos over the last 15 years, and you would almost say that in some ways for the Broncos, Champ Bailey was Louis Wright 2.0, oh, sort yeah. of taking that 
raw athleticism, the length, and putting it on another yeah. level. But both of them great players. Yeah, the 77 Super Bowl, I remember um, uh, that year we win a game in Kansas City, tough game. We punched the Chiefs, and the Chiefs guy is off to the races. And Louis Wright takes off after him. And it was amazing to watch. This guy had a lead like you couldn't believe. Louis Wright gets him down at like the three-yard line. Broncos have a four-down goal line stand, beat the Chiefs. Big game. Louis Wright was a magnificent player. You know, Ralston's drafts, we forget, he had Steve Foley in there and Reuben Carter. Reuben Carter, the, the, the prototype nose tackle of the 3-4, and Foley, who remains our all-time pass interception leader and I think is the only player besides Champ in our history to have eight consecutive seasons of three or more picks. Just astonishing. He's not in the ring of fame yet. I feel like that's going to happen. I at some personally point. think, yeah. Now, of course, you know, some years nobody goes in. Some years we we do say that so and so ought to have the season to himself. But at some point, I am hoping that he gets consideration. Well, the interesting thing with Steve Foley, and I've had this conversation with a couple other people as well. Given how the nature of passing in the NFL has changed, with the emphasis more on accuracy, short to intermediate routes not going deep at the same rate, protecting the football, keeping possession rather than taking risks. Interception rates have gone way down. And I would argue, Jim, that the safest record in the Broncos record book and the one that is least likely to be broken in my lifetime is the interception record held by Steve Foley. Somebody needs to average 4.4 a year for 10 years. And not leave for free agency. That's going to be very difficult to do. Three is a good season now. Three is a good season. This guy had 44. I'm telling you, it was like Ken Griffey Jr. He reminded me of um, the line somebody asked Willie Mays once. Can you tell us, Willie, how you play center field? He said, oh, yeah. They hit him and I catch him. (laughs) (laughs) Steve Foley, they throw him and I catch him. And some were huge. I think back to... uh, Again, I'm going to make reference Seattle for a second time. 1984, Week 16, oh, pick, pick six, six that basically sealed the game I remember in the kingdom the, that gave the Broncos the I remember AFC the sidelines when, when he caught it. Joe Collier said, six. <laughs> and um, now I remember the day Foley was taken. I show up to cover it, to cover the draft. And I said to our late PR director, who eventually hired me, but I said, what are they looking for on game two, on day two here? He said, you know, there's a quarterback at Tulane they think might be able to play safety. <laughs> so, <laughs> And then, of course, 1976, you mentioned the Tom Glassick draft. And then, let's face it, the drafts in the late 70s, early 80s, it gets a little bit yep. fallow there. In 1977, for example, Rob Lytle, a good second-round uh-huh. pick. Bill Bryan out of Duke, end up playing about a decade who, at center. Who was, our, was, who was our number one in 77? Steve, Steve Schindler. Schindler. Where did he go to college? Boston College. This was Red Miller's first year as the, offense, as the head coach. And where did he come from? Boston. New, New England. England. That's right. So, you know, that's one of those where you're saying, boy, I saw this kid last year. What a player. Well, what a college player. Not a great pro. 78, uh, Don Latimer led off that draft out of Miami. Of course, the Broncos picking 27th in yeah. the first round after winning or he, after winning. He had AFC some injuries, to be honest. Lats played hard, but he had some injuries. N- did not amount to what you thought a number one would be, you know. In 1980, the worm starts to turn a little bit as you start building the 1980s Broncos. No first-round pick. That was the Matt Robinson trade. But in round two, 
Rulong Jones out of Utah State. Yes. Rulong Jones, an outstanding player, uh, terrific draft choice out of Utah State, and uh, and he went out to have a great career. Very interesting guy, as mild mannered as you could meet off the field. On the field, he seethed with a rage, just a rage, like a primal, you know, like both hands in the air and screaming. <laughs> um, he was a very intimidating figure on the field. And then Dan Reeves, his first draft, 1981. Kind of like John Ralston, starting off with a big-time player. And with all respect to Riley Odoms, an even better pick at number 15 to open the Dan Reeves era, Dennis Smith. Dennis Smith was a great player. He was one of my favorite guys, actually. And to tell you the truth, Dennis had a lot of surliness and hardness to him. Uh, he was a player, you know. But then uh, he really changed. It, it, you know, he's a guy who went back to USC as a regular student and got his degree, uh, manages apartment houses with his father-in-law, still married to one of the greatest wives. A great, one of my great stories, Andre uh, Smith comes in one morning. Uh, it's a Monday, and she's got the baby carriage and one under her arm. I say, hey, Andre, what's going up? Where, where are you going now? She said, i got to go to May DNF uh, before yes. Macy's. I said, oh, what's going on? She said, you know, on Monday, she said, I have to peel Dennis off the sheets because there's so much blood. And some days oh I gosh. can wash the sheets, and some days I got to go to May DNF. Today, I got to go to May DNF. Dennis Smith played like they wanted to take his pinky off once. And you can ask him, he'll immediately. And he said, they said, it's no use to you. You've banged it so many times, it's just hanging there. He said, but it's my pinky. I want to keep it. He still has the pinky. And I don't think the way Dennis Smith played safety, I don't know what would happen now, but it wouldn't be allowed. Yeah, Dennis Smith and Steve Atwater eventually played oh. together. and Played uh, together. Yeah. Played together. If you're making a list of all-time safety pairings, that may not be number one, but in the parlance of Bum Phillips, it won't take you long to call no. the roll. And you got the one of them laughing after every hit, Steve Atwater, like it's just a game, which <laughs> it was to him. These are great players. Now, Steve ought to go into the Hall of Fame, I hope, soon, too. But um, Fingers crossed for 2020. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, Dan, the selection of Dennis Smith was a big-time uh, acquisition. Yeah, so now let's fast forward to 1983. And 83. We're I'm, I'm thinking I'm about this because when the Nuggets got paired with the San Antonio Spurs in the 2-7 matchup for the first round of this year's playoffs, one of the first things I thought of, Jim, <laughs> was, was how it was during a Nuggets-Spurs game, although in the second round, not the first round, yes. the NBA calendar is a little bit different now than it used to be, and it was during game four when the world learned that the Broncos had made the trade and they're calling the press conference for, I believe it was 10.30 p.m. that night. Oh, I know it well. I, I can talk about it forever. I don't think that's what you want, but I can. The next you can day, talk as much as you want about The next day, this. Harv Kirkpatrick, the wonderful PR guy of the Nuggets, called me and said, Jim, it was like there was a bomb scare on press row. Everybody got a call from their desk, and except for the actual beat guy and AP guy, everybody got up and left. Everybody. So we're play in 82, we're playing in San Diego. We're staying at the Town and Country Motel, kind of a Warren place uh, on Hotel Circle. And Edgar Kaiser calls me into his suite on Sunday morning. Go to his suite, and he says, I want to talk to you. Jim, what do you think about getting John Elway? And in my infinite naivete, I say, oh, Mr. Kaiser, you can't get Elway because he'll be the first guy taken in the draft. 
And he said, Jim, anything in America can be bought and sold, said the man who had Kaiser Oil, Kaiser Permanente, and Kaiser Steel at one time or another. He said, Any, anything in America can be bought or sold. What do you think of, of get them? He said, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's a seminal moment. You, you, if you can get him, get him. Okay, move up to the draft. And I remember Baltimore takes him. And, uh, oh, my gosh, I still remember it so vividly. We had Fran Polsfoot, our tight ends coach, called Jack Elway. They'd been roommates in College of Washington State. And he calls him and says, Jack, you know, we know you're going to play baseball or, or you'll sign with the Colts. But, oh, by the way, in case it ever happens that it gets mentioned, oh, Denver, Colorado, what a wonderful place to be. What a wonderful young owner we have. What a wonderful coach we have. Never yells at anybody, Dan Reeves, or anything. Anyway. That's music to the Elway's ears because we all know about Frank Cush. Oh, he didn't want Baltimore to play. Baltimore coach That's the whole and the reputation. To to Baltimore. That's yes. right. His dad didn't want him to play for Frank Cush. Anyway, Jack Elway wasn't immediately there to take the call. So, so a message gets left. And then the food service area was the same place for everybody. Everybody ate at the same cafeteria. And I'm in there, and I'm with the sports writers, and Fran Pulse was in there, and... Pat Linder, secretary from upstairs, comes in and she says, Fran, Jack Elway's returning your call. And I thought, oh, my God in heaven. Every and, writer has heard this. Uh, yes, but they just kept ladling free food out of their plates. That's the truth. Because I asked a couple of them later, you followed up everything. Why didn't you follow that up? And he just said, I guess I was looking at the chicken or something. But anyway, so Fran makes the call. Then, but then I went upstairs to report this to Mr. Kaiser. Wonderful lady, no offense, but I said, Mr. Kaiser, I've, I have to tell you something. Boop, 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 I say, Pat came downstairs, he hollers this, and he just kind of chuckled and rolled his eyes about 11 times and said, we'll handle that one thing internally, which they did. Um, but he said, um, but just to let you know, we are moving on Elway. We're halfway there. I have halfway to go. And I thought, you know that, and and he said that in the coaches' room to the coaches too, or in the the draft room. And I got to admit, they chuckled. And I didn't think it was nice. I mean, because the owner tells you something, he's the owner. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I thought they're chuckling because they're so smart, and he's not. But he knew how to talk to Mr. Ursay. He always called him Mr. Ursay, who always called him that nice young boy in Denver. He was the one who didn't call him an alcoholic. Edgar Kaiser always was deferential, and uh, and he and he called Bob Ursay and Bob Ursay, and he never mentioned Elway, till finally like the third or fourth call, and he says, "Yeah, you know, if you decided, if you couldn't do it, I mean, surely he'll sign with you and an organization, an owner, and you. But if you had to trade him, yeah, we'd be interested. Anyway, uh, we, uh, actually, when the draft was over, because we had no laptops then, I had a four-page." legal size single space bio of Elway and I thought to myself you know I will never be able to put this together in a half hour or an hour when I throw away all the ones that I don't need I better keep this one and I had it in my uh, drawer and a week later Hein Paulus our GM came in to my office I cupped the phone I was on the phone with an announcer from Kim Radio and I cupped the phone. I didn't even put him on hold. And he said, he just said, Jim, the Elway deal is done. Uh, finish up your call and come in and we'll talk about it. So I go back to the guy. And I literally, he was asking about Elway. I said, oh, we know he's going to go to San Diego or Oakland or whatever, the Raiders. But thanks a lot for calling. Goodbye. I gallop in and Hines says, how quickly can you put together a press release? And I said, it's done. And he said, good boy. 
And good boy. Uh, yeah, I was in, I was in good stead. <laughs> I mean, he's a good boy. Oh, okay. you know, I mean, he he. Uh, I'm hearing that, and I'm thinking, what, does he think you're like a golden retriever no, or something? No, but I mean, I mean, there's like, there's a standard, there's another standard, and this was like the ultimate standard when I said, yes, I have a line to type at the top that says the Denver Broncos have traded for and signed John Elway, and then the rest of it is the, and I clipped and pasted. Anyway, yes, we had the press conference that night, and the deal was they were going to the airport, they were going to get on the plane with the agent and John. The deal is, the deal was done, but you like the deal? They get off the plane. You don't like the deal? The plane flies away. And uh, they, yeah, they called at 8.30 and said, how quickly can we have it? I said, well, we, we got to give the guys in the Springs a chance to come. Let's do it at 10.30. So we had a press conference at 10.30 p.m. And um, Did everyone from the Springs make it? Everybody made it. <laughs> it was bigger than anything. And we actually had a second one the next day because it happened so late at night, 10, 12.30 Eastern a.m., that some of the Eastern people, when they woke up, they said, what? It didn't oh, make the papers. The didn't make day. the papers. Made it in Denver. Yes. But not in the East. Not in the East Coast. No. So we had another press conference at 1.30. And, God, this is the truth. Walking back to my office from the press conference after me and John. Well, John, that's great. He said, yep. I'll sure be glad when all this media stuff is over. Ah. I, didn't, I, didn't have the, I didn't have the heart to say what his future was going to but he said we I've talked about it with him I'll sure be glad when all this media stuff is over he said 36 years later it ain't over yet <laughs> oh, oh my but goodness. and boy what a what a play you know his first passes were not thrown in Denver mini camp we get snowed out we always got snowed out it's going to yeah. snow in may and it's going to it's going to snow during, we, during the Mike Shanahan era he had a habit oh. of having mini camp on Mother's Day weekend, it seemed to always if, snow that. If Vic Fangio has a has a mini camp on Mother's Day weekend, I will guarantee you it's going to snow. Anyway, we bust down to Colorado Springs, and John threw his first passes at the Air Force Academy in their field house. That I did not know. Yeah, which by the way is great field house because the press box, you know, uh, goes two ways: hockey on one side, basketball on the other. So literally, if you're in the press box, you could watch both sports, twisting your head a lot. Or um, very nice. Anyway, that's where John Elway threw his first passes. And I got to tell you, there were oohs and ahs. And John John was, um, I remember Joe Collier was a conservative coach who liked veterans. And about halfway through camp, I said, I wonder who's going to be our starter, Joe. And I wasn't hinting, but he kind of looked at me and he just, he just held up seven fingers. You know, he was, I remember his first game. Uh, Doug Looney of, of uh, SI spent a week with us in Greeley, a week with us. And, uh, and Elway played the second half. We played Seattle. In a, well, I don't know why. We had five preseason games that year and Seattle, the first one at home. And Elway was scheduled to play the second half. And, and I mean, he ran out of the field. Again, it's a goosebump moment. Holy smoke. Yeah, why were there three preseason games? Let there me were see. five. but we okay. had, And we had three at home. I don't know why. Because it wasn't the Hall of Fame game. It was an odd thing. Or actually, no, it was four. It was four? Seattle, Atlanta, Cleveland, Minnesota. My mistake. Anyway, Seattle was the first, and it was in Denver. And, uh, and that was something. And that was, of course, uh, Edgar Kaiser made the deal. He calls Dan. Dan's on the golf course. So even though Edgar Kaiser was a dominating personality, he wanted to defer to his coach, if you can imagine. He's made the deal with Elway, but he's not going to finalize it until Dan says, okay. Can you imagine? Bob Ursay says it's okay. 
So he calls Dan on the course. He says, well, we're giving up uh, Chris Hinton, our number one. We're giving away Mark Herman, who we don't need now because we give away our number one next year. And then they get to play two exhibition games in Denver because it's worth a lot of money to them because we'll sell out. And Dan said, well, what else? And he said, nothing else. That's it, Coach. And Dan said, well, that's okay then. Okay. Okay. It was way more than okay. Little footnote on those exhibition games. They were in 84 and 85. Broncos won both. Outscored the Colts by a combined 51-3. Of course, it was <laughs> oh, preseason slash exhibition, but yeah, two franchises that uh, were going in different directions at that yeah. point. Yeah, and the the I was talking to, to Patrick Smythe the other day, and uh, I just we were just talking, and I said, "Yeah, Elway, he's just wired to win." And Patrick said, "Oh my gosh, that's a book title, Wired to Win: The Story of John Elway's Denver Broncos." And I thought to myself, "Yeah, but not now. It's 83 to now." That's a long period of time, Andrew. Eighty-three to, in fact, it's, until the it's last close to closer to four decades than three. Really, and until the last couple of years, no back-to-back losing seasons. No, no, and and I I would submit that while everybody deserves a role in that, there's a lot of people who aren't here anymore who had a bigger role in that even than John Elway did. And by the time the Broncos get Elway, the draft, it's not what it, it, we know now, but at this point, it's recognizable to a fan that's picking it up yeah. today, a young fan today, because it is on ESPN. Obviously, a little more primitive, different hairstyles, but still, the, the wall-to-wall coverage of the draft <laughs> the, has begun by the early 80s. Yep, and the greatest commissioner in the history of sport, Pete Rozelle, the only thing, that, he said... You want to televise the whole draft? Nobody will watch that thing. Uh, he said. Turns out everybody would watch that thing, and yeah, at that point, now now you're really into cameras, trucks, live shots, positions for crews. And the, the buildup is over months. And to me, now you got a red carpet for heaven's yeah, sake. To me, now draft season as a time of year building up for months it feels like a second regular season oh it is yeah it, and and the draft on tv will be the most watched event other than actual games that the nfl or the sport of pro football has to offer and and you could depending on you know three game day three is different but day one that 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 period it's just it's enormous it's just enormous now and it's great but then you still got to play you still got to play, and that's where you start finding out if these players can play. Last year's 2018 class, most of those guys proved they can that's hack right. it at this level. That's they right. bright futures. But we were talking about it on the radio a little while ago. You have to, to stack a few drafts like this together. 2018 yeah. alone isn't going to cut it. 2019 needs to look like 2018. That's right. Unless you get that non-Perel, that one player... More than off, more likely than not, a quarterback, but one player who could impact so many players, maybe an entire offense, an entire defense. It's really hard to do, but uh, but you hope to get that guy. I mean, you've got to have the quarterback, whether he's a veteran. We all know that the Broncos have only had one draftee, one drafted quarterback start and win a playoff game, and that's Tim Tebow. Everybody else was somebody we traded for, signed as a free agent or whatever, which is great news with Joe Flacco. But, um, yeah, you you got to play. And certainly you hope this draft class looks uh, 
at least the top certainly looks more like, for example, say, a John Mobley or a Trevor Price than a Marcus Nash. Yeah, and, and you know, you nobody's ever tried to make a bad pick, and you've got so many things to go by, but um, but you just make the picks and you see. You know, I've always said when you bring players into the locker room, uh, you got to listen to the whole thing. The first thing they do is get naked. What I mean by this is they change into a common uniform, like in the military. But then at that point, it doesn't matter how big your check was. doesn't matter how many press clippings you've got. None of it matters. Now you go on the same football field. The fastest guy is the fastest guy. And you can't just say, well, this guy tested. I don't care how he tested. I don't want the fastest guy. I want the guy like Mecklenburg who gets there faster than anybody else and makes all the tackles. And with every day that goes past, as I say, that draft status means less less and less. And less to where... By last summer, for example, two years removed from being drafted, the Broncos cut Paxton Lynch That's because right. he wasn't cutting it. You know, after about a week of camp, I remember saying to somebody, and I'm not by any means saying that I'm a, but I said, of all the young guys, the biggest cinch, of course, is John Elway. The second biggest cinch is our 12th round pick, Carl Mecklenburg. So Dan Reeves is going to put in his offense, a treasured thing for Dan, a wonderful coach. And he's got Joe Collier's like third string defense out there, fifth string, whatever the heck it is, you know, because he's put together his he's put his offense together. Dan eventually stops the drill, calls Joe over and chews him out, and says, "You got to do something about number seventy-seven. I'm trying to put my offense together, and this is against the first unit." He said, "Every single play." It's like the guy doesn't even know any better. Tag, you're it. <laughs> Tag, he's got the quarterback every play. Tag, you're it. Like, like it's a game for Mecklenburg. And that, that, you know, if, if you watch Mech go through the ropes drill, you think, oh, my God, stop him. He's going to kill himself. But, boy, as soon as you put in the player on the field, it's like a, it's like a bone with a hungry dog. Oh, my gosh. I kind of remember that with Philip Lindsay last year, too. Philip Lindsay. He's out, it took he's two out, seconds. Right. You knew first practice. This is one of the best players on the team. That's right. That's right. And that's what he was, and that's what he is. Um, you know, it's, it's... Can't take the Pro Bowl away from him, no matter no, what. No, you he can't do that. He's at least a Broncos Pro Bowl. That's correct, and that's a wonderful thing. Bob Swenson had the line, I have to make it one time, which he did, to be to be able to say in my life, I was a Pro Bowl linebacker in the NFL. And that's the truth. And Philip Lindsay is and always will be a Pro Bowl running back in the NFL. Yep, and he did it right away, and... You can just go through the list of Broncos that were undrafted and became stars. Philip Lindsay, Chris Harris Jr., Rod Smith, all guys who showed. Now, all those guys might have been picked in a 12-round draft or a 17-round draft back in the day, but the bottom line is they weren't. A lot of people maybe didn't expect something of them, but they, they expected something and of they, themselves, they all and they had showed a, right they away. They all had a common trait in college, productivity. They were not guys where you said, boy, he's really fast, but his hands, or boy, he, he seems to his he seems to have problems with his quads, or this or that. They were guys with enormous productivity, great stats. And I remember thinking to myself, actually, when we drafted Dan Neal, and I'm doing the bio, and he did like he started like 51 games at Texas, and I thought, wait a second, how could you start 51 games at Texas? He started every game. Didn't he ever sprain an ankle? Well, of course he did. Didn't he do this? Yes. The point is, he always. I don't know if he was healthy enough to start, but he started. And then he became a starter for us. It was exactly the same kind of player. Shannon Sharp, I remember reading his bio 
when I'm, I was at the Xerox machine, and I thought, geez, this guy's catching 70, 80 passes a year at Savannah State. Well, don't they play defense? Surely they're trying to stop him. If he caught all these passes, he's probably going to keep catching all these passes. And it mattered then, and it matters now. Last year's draft was predicated on guys with a lot of experience, generally start a lot of games, team captains. As I put my notes together for the marathon of team bro- captains. Right. For the marathon of broadcasting that we're doing, I'm making note of the guys that were three or four year starters that were team captains that either exhausted their eligibility or they already have their degree. These things mattered last year. It seems like they're going to matter again yeah. for the twenty nineteen class. And they mattered in the past too. Yeah. And and I'm I'm I am what I am, but I know anytime the words underachiever are used or we have to get him to improve his route running, ooh, these are bad, bad comments. It's the guy who's indomitable, who indomitable, who, uh, you know, Keith Karst was a free agent. It was a starting center for us, replacement player. And he had cancer in his life at Cal, lost a, a ton of pounds. And then they told him he couldn't play. That was it. You can't play anymore. And he went to the football offices and his complaints were so vigorous and rigorous that I guess he pretty much destroyed the office he was in. And they let him play. You know, he was just not a guy who uh, he was not going to settle for not playing. And uh, guys like that, Keith Bishop was like that. Boy, guys like that are worth a lot. When you can find those guys, you've got something special. And fortunately for the Broncos, they found a lot of those guys over the years. And uh, to get this thing turned around, they need another class of players like that. Jim, always a pleasure, my friend. The pleasure is mine, Andrew. Thanks, Jim. And Thank you for joining us on this Broncos History Podcast. Be sure and stay tuned to the Broncos Audio Zone for plenty more. Of course, our Horsing Around podcast. We're going to have uh, interviews from Orange and Blue 760 and plenty more to come as we count down to the 2019 NFL Draft. For Jim Sakamano, I'm Andrew Mason. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.